In times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared. Enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. The sleepless tales commence, fellow travelers. I'm your guide, David Cummings. Well, season 17's long winter hibernation has come to an end. Feels like a good long sleepless rest. And it is long when you've been trapped in a temporal prison here and there, on the whims of a multiversal witch with unknown but sinister plans. And that's the thing, isn't it? This witch of the season of the witch fame otherwise known as Joanna from season 16. Well, she's been lurking around. Mostly, she's been committing minor crimes and inconveniences against me and the team, like disrupting our schedule, deleting our sound effects libraries, killing our voice actors, you know, small things like that. But trust me, her shadow is looming over everything, and if you ask me, it will be until the season's end. She's a dark presence, is Joanna. I can't even imagine a bigger threat. Ah, well, but things have been going well here at the No Sleep Podcast headquarters as we head into 2022. As you may know, we celebrated our 500th episode last week, and going forward, we're working on many exciting things. We'll be opening those doors later in the year. We're also preparing to launch one or two new initiatives, utilizing things like our Twitch and YouTube channels, social media accounts, and the podcast feed itself. So there has never been a better time to follow us on all those platforms, the links to which can be found in this week's show notes. Ah, but here at the No Sleep Podcast, one thing above all which has always been top priority for us is plot. And so we move from teasing upcoming projects to sharing this week's terrifying Tangled Webs. In our first tale, we receive a timely reminder of this season's theme, folk horror. Those tales of legend that linger in the consciousness of everyone who lives in a given area. A single village's superstition that might seem ludicrous to anyone passing through. But in this tale, shared with us by author Manon Lysette, we're reminded that even the most implausible urban myth can exist for an important purpose. So join me as I recount this particular incident. Normally, we encourage you all to stay sleepless, but in this case, I must urge you to be home by seven so you can get to bed on time. 
Otherwise, you might meet the Bonhomme Satyr. I've always been fascinated with folklore and by how people respond to it. Tell someone you saw Bigfoot or that your apartment is haunted and they'll laugh or try to discredit you. Share a piece of folklore with someone and they'll sit there and listen with riveted interest. I used to wonder why folklore gets a free pass, but I think I get it now. Folklore is history. It's part of our cultural fabric. It's far enough removed from us that, while you can't say any of it is true, it's still a story worth sharing because it's part of where we came from. The age of a story gives it weight, kind of like how an 18th century haunted house has more credence than a haunted RV. Take the folklore out of its historical context and apply it to modern day, however, and you start getting those weird looks and snickers from people again. I found this out when I was a kid, and even though my parents were the ones who warned me about him, they wouldn't believe my run-in with the infamous Bonhomme Setir. For those of you who don't know, the Bonhomme Setir is a character from Quebec folklore. Translated, his name means the Seven O'Clock Man. Most regions have their own take on the Bonhomme Setir. But the way he was described to me as a kid was a tall, lanky old man with a long, crooked nose who'd roam the streets at night carrying a large burlap sack. He'd snatch up any child that stayed out past their seven o'clock curfew, stuff them in his bag, and quietly leave town. The children would never be seen or heard from again. He was similar to the Sandman in that the end goal was for children to be in bed by a certain time but more frightening to me because there was nothing magical about him. He was just a guy with a sack and a knack for finding kids at night. He could have been real, I thought, and for the longest time, the idea of him terrified me. But then I got a little older and my fear faded. It was nearing the end of December when it happened. With the sun setting as early as 4 p.m., it was hard to gauge time. My friends and I had gone straight to the frozen pond turned outdoor skating rink to play hockey after school. We started off five against five, with a few extra kids swapping in and out as parents came to poach others away. Eventually, it was down to just four of us, and by then we were all getting cold and hungry. René and Jean Pascal took off together down Rue Principale, or what you would call Main Street, leaving Mathieu and I alone on the ice. I hadn't quite learned to read the exact time on my analog watch, but I could tell it was getting close to seven. Now, that might seem a little odd to all those helicopter parents out there who drag their kids around on literal leashes and put GPS tracking software on their phones. But I was born in a very different era and in a place with an equally different culture. Back in my day, it was perfectly normal for kids to be out late into the evening. This was before parents started checking Halloween candy for nails, and when you actually knew your neighbors, rather than being afraid of human contact. I lived in a kind of rural-suburban-town hybrid native to Quebec. I don't think there's a real English translation for the word, but I suppose the closest you could get to it is a, a township. Our plots of land were big, 
but not so much that we couldn't easily run to a neighbor's house if necessary. It wasn't quite farmland, but it also wasn't a bustling city. There were two main roads, one going north-south and the other east-west. A single school and only a couple thousand residents. Us kids would mostly get around on foot or on one of the two school buses servicing the entire township. The pond, the favorite winter get-together spot for us living on the north side of town, was about a 25-minute walk from my home, and as my stomach screamed out again, I knew it was time to go. I waved my goodbye to Matthew and took off down the path of flattened snow. I looked behind me only once and saw him dragging his feet along as he walked circles around the rink. He'd once told me his dad liked having alone time after work, but I knew better. We'd all seen the bruises. He was in no hurry to get home. It was quiet that night, but I wasn't afraid. The moon was high in the sky, and its already refracted light refracted a second time off the blanket of snow covering the landscape. Even as I entered a strip of woods quartering off the town proper from our homes, I could still see clearly. I was going at a leisurely pace and feeling safe, until I heard a distant shriek cutting through the naked tree line. I think my cowardice saved me that night, because if I'd stopped to investigate, I'm sure I wouldn't be here telling you this story today. Thankfully, as luck would have it, My immediate reaction was to run, and oh boy, did I run. It doesn't matter how long ago this happened, I can still remember how it burned to breathe in the cold air as fast as I did, and I can still remember the sound of snow crunching with each footfall. I kept up my pace as long as I could, but eventually slowed to a walk. Alone, in the middle of the woods... I strained my ears to listen for any other screams. I was on edge and felt as though my body was wrapped in an electric current which constantly flickered and drew my attention to benign things. Twigs, owls, rocks, everything was a danger. But the more danger you experience, the more desensitized you get to it. I slowly got comfortable again. Everything was fine. I released the tension I'd built up in a loud sigh of relief. It was just a normal, quiet winter night. I was safe and alone. I stopped to catch my breath, and at first, I didn't notice the sound of my footsteps persisted. But how could I hear the crunch, crunch, crunch of snow under my feet if I was standing still? The static of fear fizzled in the nook of my neck. The footsteps were heavy and slow. They came once for every two I would normally take, but as I started running in terror, it was more like one for every four. Unless I listened carefully and searched specifically for them, they seemed to disappear in my chorus of footfalls. I would have looked back if my neck hadn't become stiff with fear and if my mind hadn't been focused on keeping my pace. I would have looked back, if only to know how close or how far the source of the footsteps was. Maybe it was best not to know. I cleared the forest, and I could see my porch light beaconing me like a lighthouse in the dark. A ten-minute walk away, 
but I could make it in five if I kept running. Even if my stamina should have failed me three times over, I still managed to maintain my pace. The stories my parents had told me of the bonhomme setteur ignited my engine, and the fear of being caught fueled my run. Finally, I jumped the wooden stairs up to my porch and swung open my front door. My parents didn't ask, or didn't notice, I'm not sure, why I ran up the stairs into my bedroom and threw myself under my covers. I wanted to sleep, but I was wired. And then I felt a prickling sensation, like the feeling that tells you to check your closet for monsters. Mine told me to look out the window. Wrapping my blanket around me like a hooded cape, I slowly crept out of bed into the window, peering between the blinds. And that's when I saw him. That's when I saw the bonhomme setteur standing in the street. The stories had it right. He was tall, but not inhumanly so. Old, wrinkly, wore tattered clothes but for an immaculate black preacher hat, and carried on his back a large brown sack. Some would tell me I imagined him entirely. Others would say he was just a wanderer passing through. But everyone, and I mean everyone, tells me I'm wrong about his sack. They tell me I couldn't possibly have seen it writhing and twitching as though someone inside were trying to break free. A bony old man, they reasoned, would never be able to carry a bag of children on his shoulders. Funny how they don't question that part when they hear the folklore, only when you tell them it's true. He smiled at me and waved, sending a funnel of cold to drain out all the warmth in my body. Still holding the bag in one hand, he stretched out the other and gently tapped his wrist as though motioning for a watch, and then wagged his finger disapprovingly. I dove for my bed and closed my eyes, praying he wouldn't come for me. I pretended to sleep, even as my parents came in to get me for supper. I stayed on that bed until morning, thinking it was the only thing keeping me alive. I only shared what happened when I found out the next day that Mathieu had gone missing. No one believed me, of course. It was too far-fetched. Legends aren't real. After interviewing friends, family, and teachers, the police eventually arrested his father. I'm not sure what ultimately happened to him, since Mathieu's body was never found, not even to this day, as though a northerly wind swept him away. I'm the only one who believes the truth, the only person who knows the legend of the Bonhomme Setteur is real. Being alone can be both a gift and a curse. 
For some, getting away from everyone can be a thrilling prospect. For others, though, being alone means being lonely. Or worse, afraid. But in this tale, shared with us by author Mark Nixon, we're reminded that sometimes one thing can become the other, no matter how much you might think you enjoy the silence. Performing this tale are Erica Sanderson, Penny Scott Andrews, James Cleveland, and Andy Cresswell. So close the doors and lock the windows. It's still isolation if there's a wall between you and them, right? Find out when we conduct a study in solitude. They cut down half the forest when they expanded the motorway in the 20s. Before then, I'm told animals like deer were a common sight outside the villages nearby. But since then, nature seemed to take the hit and withdraw. Nothing seemed to come out of that forest anymore. I grew up just outside one of these villages. My earliest memory is waking up at night and seeing a barn owl on my windowsill. I seemed to wonder why I was awake. Of course, I don't know how it used to be, how the wood had seemed to grow in all directions, how it spread around the villages with only minor roads and occasional farmhouses such as ours to hold it back. These tales were just old stories, and you can't move in England for old stories. The only thing I ever noticed is that when my dad would cut down a tree for firewood, there never seemed to be any fewer trees the next year. Our house stood alone, separated just far enough to get its own postcode. If it wasn't for the occasional passing car, you could feel totally alone here. Shit! Shit. This was my third little scratch on the car. But it would be okay as long as I could hide it from my dad. He spotted these things righter. Oh, right. Alone. Aha! <sighs> uh-huh. Mostly superficial. Take that, Dad. Never mind the melancholy. Solitude was what I was here for. I was near the end of my second year of university. You know the year. We meant to party all through the first and then really settle down for a second. But if it only worked that way, eh? Don't get me wrong, I've been working hard, but there'd been far too much distraction. So naturally I'd fallen into a constant state of panic. And after yet another stress call to Mum, she suggested that I house sit while they were away. One three-hour drive later, here I was for seven days with no distractions. And the way the weather was going, looked like I was going to be snowed in too. So I really had no excuse but to simply crack on. Hello, house. Well, that's it. I've already finished editing what I've written back there in. Jesus Christ, it were bad. Oh. It was like I'd just... Oh, vomited on the page. Oh, come now. Honestly! But I did that in what? Two and a half hours? Yeah, this is actually a great idea. (coughs) Ah. What's up? Oh, my books are all over the floor. My mum would have a fit, but everything was where I needed it to be. Ah, can you keep still, actually? Uh, 
Why? You keep cutting out. The signal's really shit. Ugh. I'm too full of energy. This is what happens when I know I've got the right words in me. Well, should I call the landline? Ah, Dad got rid of it. Only people who used it were cold callers. Hmm, good point. How long are they away for, anyway? Hmm, just a couple of days. Yeah, no, gotta move. Sorry, bud. I shouldn't chat for long, anyway. Okay, sure. But, yeah, I'm glad you found your headspace. Is it not lonely, though? All alone by the deep, dark wood? (laughs) Not really, but... It's nice at the moment. It's snowing and... Oh, it's snowing? Yeah. Did you get there okay then? Yeah. Wasn't as heavy as before, but it's really coming down now. Oh, it's nice. What's that? You cut out again. I said it's nice. How's your dissertation going anyway? Can you hear me? It's going pretty well. I came across something about your area, actually. I thought you were writing about Scottish folklore. I am, but it blends into Northumberland, too. It was something about a hollow man in the woods there. There's some cracking illustrations, actually. And in an old pad. I shouldn't say more, because... I don't want to give you the jibblies. Sam. Sam, I can't hear a thing. Sam. Hello? Oh, well, there goes the signal. Probably for the best, anyway. Right. My productivity was soaring. I felt better about my existing work, and the words were practically flowing out of me. Breaking only for the occasional glass of wine, I was soon another 5,000 words into my dissertation before I knew it. Then 6,000, 7,000, 8,000 even. But burnout began to rear its ugly head, and I eventually drifted off right there on the floor. Must have... Oh, I must have drifted off. Oh, oh, God, please tell me I saved. Oh, oh, thank God. Wait, what? That it stopped snowing during the night, apparently, and it lay at least a foot deep. In the snow lay a trail of footprints. Human footprints. Footprints coming out from the wood and leading right up to the glass doors. The prints closest to the glass were deeper, as if someone had stood there for a while, looking in, looking at me, while I slept on the floor. Shit! (laughs) The prints also led away, in the opposite direction back to the wood. But the worst part, they were barefoot. I mean, it was morning now and it was freezing inside since the fire had gone out. But someone, barefoot, had walked out of the woods right up to the glass door and actually watched me. Oh, Oh, come on! 
I had to at least show this to someone. Luckily, the internet wasn't as flaky as my mobile service provider. Of course, the internet signal had always been crappier too. Didn't even know if it could legally be called broadband. Like, you had to really want to watch a YouTube video to bear the slog. While I waited for the browser to load, I looked back out the glass. It must have been a drunk. The nearest pub was about half an hour walk away, but, well, you know what they say about northerners not feeling the cold. Here we are. 10.30 last night. Sorry we got cut off, hon. Hope you got lots of work done. Gary says hi. Winky face, winky face, aubergine, winky face. <laughs> Idiot. Oh, 10.40. Here's what I was telling you about. Creepy stuff. Okay. Forever waiting. I opened the email app and jotted a quick message to mum and dad. Miss you guys. Can I convince you to come back a day early? I'm sort of spooked. No. Wait. It's lonelier here than I thought it would be, and, uh, just miss you. I was not about to tell my parents about mystery drunk footprints. They'd have a fit. Hopefully a soppy message would bring them home sooner. Christmas shopping in York can't be that fun anyway, and I'd certainly feel better. Oh, finally! So what on earth is this, Sam? North East England, deforestation. It was said nature had a way of taking something back. Wait, those buried near woods were reported to have been seen again by those in the villages. What? I'll get stuffed, Sam, you spooky twat. Nope. I'd intended to share the photo of the footprints, but it's hard to be sincere when you're normally communicating animated gifs and emojis. Plus, I didn't want to thinking I was upset. Sam had enough on her plate. Oh, it was snowing again, coming down hard and fast. I sat there a while, watching it fall. Soon, it erased the footprints. So too did it erase my anxiety, for the most part. I wasn't sure what time it was, though I felt like I'd only had a few hours sleep. There'd been a sound outside, I was sure. And while I sat there, breathlessly listening, thoughts began to swirl of what it could be. Even now, looking back, I can't be sure. Maybe there was a sound and maybe there wasn't. Maybe I just liked to pretend I was more aware than I really was. I almost wish I'd been able to stay awake. I'd slept in, which wasn't unheard of, but it hadn't been an easy night. I could see from the kitchen window that the snow was still freshly thick, and then the thought occurred. Despite everything, I'd made sure the curtains over the glass French doors had been drawn. I mean, wouldn't you have? I was almost too scared to look. Almost. Okay. One, 
two, three. <laughs> okay. Nothing, as expected. Just fresh snow, but like ice cream ready for scooping. Post. Wait, it's torn that to shreds. Oh Christ, this is a mess. Well, I don't think Dad would mind the Brexit leaflet being shredded, but oh yeah, this is his bank statement. Oh. Oh. Excuse me. Excuse me. Oi! I'm sorry? Look, sorry to shout, mate, but you shredded these letters. My dad's really particular about these things. He needs them for his tax returns and... I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I'm in a rush. Lots to deliver today and, and the roads. You okay? What? Are you okay? What are you staring at? Is the house okay? Have you had some mates over or something? Wait, 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 no. I, I don't know what's going on, and it's not my business. I I have to go. Oh, where are my bloody shoes? Now, what on earth are you staring at? Footprints. Everywhere. They came from the wood again, to the front of the house, walked up the wall and simply kept going. They walked up the walls and they were bloody everywhere. Wait! Don't fucking leave me! Those footprints were the same. Barefoot. Human. But no one could do that. And even if it were a prank, I'd have no clue how they could reach the height they did. I tried Dad. I tried Sam. And of course it wouldn't fucking connect. Shit! <laughs> what the hell is happening? <laughs> what? It was coming from the glass French doors. I'd drawn the curtains again. The sun had been reflecting off the snow. Birds tap on the glass sometimes. It was smiling. That was the first thing I noticed. That and the cruel malice in its eyes. It stood, arms pressed against the glass. Its skin was blue from the cold, and yet it looked unfazed. I wanted to scream, but I couldn't. God, I wanted to fucking scream. Won't you? Won't you come outside? I woke on the floor some time later. Must have passed out. 
The thing at the window were gone, but its huge handprints were all over the glass. I think... I think it tried to get in. Mum and Dad got my email and found me bracing against the front door that night. <laughs> they had to fight their way in, poor sods. I wasn't the same again for a while, as you can well imagine. <sighs> Look, that's my story, okay? Let it be the fucking end of it. Fire! What do you do? Panic, scream, and run around recklessly, right? No, that is absolutely not how you should react when the building you're in catches a blaze. And in this tale, shared with us by author Hannah Walton, we join a class of studious second graders as they learn the basics of fire safety. Performing this tale are Kristen D. Mercurio, Nicole Goodnight, Danielle McRae, Wafia White, Mick Wingert, Kyle Akers, and Sarah Thomas. So try not to feed the flames of your anxiety. This is just a test. Ignore the chill going up your spine as you make your way through the smoke trailer. Eleanor stood in the damp November air, with her shoulders hunched to her ears. The pavement of Pembroke Elementary School's back parking lot was wet and freezing, and she imagined that she could feel the cold creeping up through the rubber soles of her white Reebok sneakers, deadening the feet inside. She remembered the picture she had seen in a library book about the Arctic of a hand, fingertips blackened by frostbite, and imagined frost corrupting her toes from the edges inward until the pink, fleshy life had been corroded entirely by blue-black rot. It was a stupid thought, obviously stupid. Stupid is what her brother Jamie would call it. Intrusive is what her mom would say. Either way, it amounted to the same. It wasn't that cold. Her toes were fine. She was silly for even thinking about it. The twisting knot in her stomach responded not at all to this logic. Eleanor hunched her shoulders harder, the purple nylon of her puffy coat rustling noisily in her ears. She wanted to stamp her feet, just a little, just to be sure they were still healthy and safe. But she didn't want Mrs. Hiles to think she was being bad. Mrs. Hiles was already mad, had already shouted at the class for not being on their best behavior as they filed out into the back parking lot. Michael had given Cameron H. a flat tire on purpose as they walked, and Cameron H. had gone careening out of single file, leaving his shoe behind entirely. As her classmates hooted and giggled, Eleanor had choked on a wild laugh, a product of startlement more than amusement. Watching in horror as Cameron H. stumbled through a shallow brown puddle in one stockinged foot. If anyone was in danger of frostbite, she realized, it was probably Cameron H., Mrs. Hiles seemed almost as mad at Cameron H. as she was at Michael, 
and had threatened the class as a whole with a loss of recess. Now the group stood in chastised silence, arranged in a solemn row in front of the truncated single-wide trailer that had been towed in during second period. Eleanor realized she was biting her lips, folding them inward and clamping them with her teeth so that her mouth became a featureless straight line across her face. Jamie called this bad cartoon face and laughed at her when she did it. She made herself return her lips to a neutral position, even though it felt less safe somehow, and turned her eyes to look up at the trailer. Sitting atop a high-wheeled base, it was shorter and wider than the school buses parked nearby, with a door set into the beige plastic paneling at either end. There were two windows in the space between the doors. Despite its odd proportions, the trailer was supposed to mimic a home, Eleanor knew, and for this reason, someone had hung short blue gingham curtains in the windows, though they were only barely visible, the fabric eaten up by solid white fog that pressed blindly and insistently against the glass. Wisps of the same fog curled from under the doors when the air changed direction. You're doing that thing with your mouth. Eleanor released her lips from between her teeth, unsure of when they had crept back in. Maisie wasn't a friend, exactly. She seemed to regard Eleanor with a kind of cool, removed curiosity that sometimes verged on pity. They did talk regularly, mostly as a function of their being next to each other in the line order that Mrs. Hiles had established to keep the bad boys apart. Eleanor often found herself thinking of Maisie with admiration and incredulity in equal measure. Even though Maisie's birthday was a full four months after Eleanor's, the younger girl seemed to have the sort of concrete fearlessness that Eleanor associated with adults. I'm sorry. She didn't quite know why. You don't have to be scared. Maisie stressed the word to emphasize its absurdity. It's not real. There's no fire. It's just practice. To Eleanor, the fact that they had to practice being in a fire indicated the inevitability of being in a fire and was in no way reassuring. This drill was not a precaution, but a grim reminder of things to come. That was stupid, or intrusive, though, and Maisie would think she was a baby if she said that. I'm just cold. She gave her best try at a confident smile. Maisie studied her face, but did not smile back. A man in a heavy canvas suit and a fireman's hat had joined Mrs. Hiles in front of the trailer. A small and insistent voice piped up in Eleanor's head. Why does he need to be dressed like that if it's just practice? Stupid. Intrusive. Second graders, count off. It was Mrs. Hiles' way of getting their attention, making sure they were in the right order in line, and of assuring that no one had wandered off. They had just done count-off before leaving the classroom, so it seemed unnecessary. Eleanor guessed that Mrs. Hiles wanted to show the fireman how obedient her students were. She waited until Maisie had yelled, six, before piping up with, seven, and listened as the students behind her continued on through, fifteen. Please give your full and best attention to Fireman Dave here while he tells us about this important activity. Mrs. Hiles stared with meaningful intensity at Michael, who blithely gazed back at her. Fireman Dave looked old, older than Mrs. Hiles, definitely, with deep lines spreading out from the corners of his eyes and bracketing his wide, downturned mouth. 
I hear you kids have been learning a lot about fire safety this week. He surveyed the line of students with his hands on his hips. Well, that's good. That's real good. The best way to boost your chances of surviving an emergency situation is to be prepared ahead of time. No video or book is going to prepare you better than a real-life simulation, though. And that's why we have the Fire Safety Education Center here. Eleanor thought that was an awfully grand title for the squat beige trailer leaking fog in the Pembroke Elementary parking lot. But she was afraid to smile, lest Fireman Dave yell at her. Now, who could tell me what to do in a situation where you're navigating a lot of smoke? Further down the line, Patrick's hand shot up. Without waiting to be called on, he shouted... Stay low to the ground. Mrs. Hiles shot him a look, but Fireman Dave was nodding. That's right, young man. You stay as low as you can. To give you all an experience of what that kind of situation is like, we have the Fire Safety Education Center here all set up like a house. There's furniture inside just like you have in your house. And you need to get from one end to the other by staying low and just crawling straight on through. We're going to go single file on our hands and knees, entering at that far end over there. Any questions? A girl's voice from the front of the line. My house doesn't look like that. My house has stairs. Mrs. Hiles scowled at Crystal as a giggle rippled through the line. Fireman Dave chuckled. Well, that's okay, honey. Uh, This is still good practice anyway. Anything else? Eleanor had a lot of questions. What is this smoke made of? Is it safe to breathe? What, What if I get stuck somehow? Can I sit out, please? But the line was already shifting toward the entrance to the trailer, and Fireman Dave opened the door wide. The fog acted funny. Eleanor expected it to come cascading out at the first opportunity, but it barely shifted, apart from some wisps that curled and beckoned down the collapsible metal steps that unfolded from the threshold. She watched as, one by one, her classmates dropped to their knees and disappeared into the blind white fog. She looked down, suddenly thinking to check what shoes Maisie was wearing so that she could keep them in sight in front of her as she crawled. Pink rubber rain boots with white polka dots. Maisie mounted the steps without hesitation and was swallowed up immediately. Eleanor made her way up one step, then two, then stopped. The solidness of the cheap trailer door opening onto the shifting white void of vaguely sweet-smelling smoke suddenly made her sick. It wasn't right, like something out of her dreams, where the known world gave way to impossibilities with obscene and terrifying ease. Go on, sweetheart, it's your turn. Fireman Dave looked back at the line of children awaiting entrance. Eleanor forced her legs to lift her up the final step and bent forward, stretching her arms blindly to find the floor. Her hands met carpet, cheap and rough, and she crawled forward into the fog. Down near the ground, she could make out the shapes of the furniture Fireman Dave had mentioned. It looked as though she was passing through a living room, with the television set and an armchair. She tried to go faster, looking for Maisie's boots ahead of her. The fog felt dense and wet in her lungs, and she wondered again if it would hurt her, if she should hold her breath. She crossed through a doorway and squinted around. Was this supposed to be a bedroom? She could see what looked like a floor lamp, a cabinet, 
Eleanor put her hand down onto something wet and cold, and too late realized that the knees of her jeans were soaking through. She wanted to cry. She needed to be out. She crawled faster, straining for some sign of Maisie's pink boots or of the doorway to the next room. There couldn't be more than one room. The trailer wasn't that long. Something dark and solid loomed out of the fog at her and struck her forehead hard. Eleanor put her hand up, first to her face, and then to the object. A metal frame, with a thin blanket spread over it. A makeshift bed. So this was supposed to be a bedroom. Why did they put furniture here, where it was directly in the path that the children were told to take? How did Maisie avoid it? Eleanor raised herself up onto her knees and felt blindly across the cot. Was she supposed to crawl over it? Her fingers touched a smooth, unbroken surface. The wall. That wasn't right. She had been crawling straight. The trailer was a straight line from door to door. Fighting the panic that squeezed her throat tight, Eleanor frantically spread her hands along the wall, groping for an opening, a doorframe. Finding nothing, she dropped back to her hands and knees and turned away from the cot, looking back through the fog for the next student behind her. Sarah. Sarah had been behind her in line, was always in line behind her for count-off. No one was there. Eleanor could see the lamp and the cabinet, but no Sarah, no anyone. The voice in her head shrilled at fire alarm frequency. You're going to be in so much trouble. You, You did it wrong. You're stuck. It's your fault. Choking back a sob, Eleanor crawled back to the door she had come through, back to the living room as fast as she could on her raw hands and cold, wet knees. The fog was different now. It wasn't her imagination. It was thinner, darker, and acrid like melting plastic or burning hair. She could see more clearly, and as she looked about her, coughing, she realized that she wasn't back in the living room. Giddy with terror, Eleanor beheld the space before her. A cramped, tiny room filled almost entirely by a bed. Not a cot like in the other bedroom, but a big, full-size bed, fully made up with blankets and pillows and a heavy, dark wooden headboard. Someone was in the bed. From her vantage point on all fours, Eleanor could see the figure propped up, its head and shoulders resting stiffly against the bed pillows. The covers were pulled up over its chest and arms as though it had been tightly tucked in, and its face was turned to stare directly at Eleanor. Jamie had a shelf in his bedroom devoted entirely to a series of books about different scientific topics. Gemstones, outer space, deep sea life. When her brother was away at hockey practice and her parents were preoccupied, Eleanor would sometimes pull one of these volumes off the shelf, filled with dread and helpless curiosity. It was a book about mummies, mummies from all over the world, from different times and cultures and circumstances. Eleanor could look at the ancient Egyptian mummies no problem. They seemed to her sleepy and benign with their dark, papery skin and elaborate wrappings. The Incan mummies gave her a little thrill of fear, with their crouched postures and skeletal faces. But they were okay, too. The ice mummy was not okay. It was the reason that Eleanor's parents had banned her from looking at the book in the first place, after she had nightmares. And it was also the reason that she could not keep herself from creeping back to look at it in secret, again and again. It wasn't an on-purpose mummy. It was a man who had been buried in the cold, 
His coffin opened years later to reveal a corpse both remarkably preserved and horribly distorted. Eyes collapsed and flat in their sockets. Nose flattened, lips pulled back to reveal both rows of teeth. Crouched over the book in her brother's room, her stomach twisting and her heart running rabbit in her chest, Eleanor examined how the corpse looked as though it had been restrained. The bluish, fish-white hands were bound with a strip of cloth to the body's sides, and another strip wrapped under the jaw to tie at the crown of the head. The voice in her head whispered, They did that so he couldn't get out. It was the ice mummy in the bed. It was looking at her through the scrim of black, stinking smoke. Its flat, dead eyes were wide and fixed. The flattened purple nose was wet and alive, nostrils flaring eagerly. Its bared yellow teeth ground together, back and forth, straining against the strip of cloth binding its jaws closed. Eleanor realized that she could hear it. The minute scraping of teeth, the groaning and squeaking of ancient cloth and thawing muscle, the short gusts of excited breath. Eleanor lost consciousness. In all his years bringing the old smoke trailer, recently rebranded as the Fire Safety Education Center, to schools, Fireman Dave had never had a scene like this one. Sure, there were always some kids who were shook up afterward, who didn't want to talk about it, who froze up and refused to go in in the first place. Nothing like these kids, though. Some of them were crying, talking nonsense about getting lost, about being alone, about bad smells and half-seen things in the smoke. He'd had to go in and retrieve that one little girl who had actually passed out. The EMTs had taken her away for observation. The trailer had been flushed of smoke, the doors and windows opened wide, and nothing was amiss. Same drab old cast-off furniture and wall-to-wall carpeting in three small, spare, consecutive rooms that had been there for going on two decades. Fireman Dave watched as Mrs. Hiles attempted to create some sort of order in the scene, bustling the children into a line. Okay, class. It's okay. Everything is okay. Eleanor will be fine. There is no need to be scared. Come on now, second graders. Let's count off. Macy, please say Eleanor's number as well as yours. It took a few moments, but the kids started reciting their numbers, their voices small. They counted once, and again, and again. Even with Maisie taking over Eleanor's number, the count kept coming up short. Let's face it, driving can be scary at the best of times, driving long distance in bad weather more so. Even worse when the bad weather is snow and ice. Every corner, every curve is a potential death trap. And in this tale, shared with us by author V.C. Fern, we get to experience the promise of arriving home safely. Or do we? Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Sarah Thomas, 
Atticus Jackson, and Graham Rowett. So rotate that radio dial and check the traffic report. We're about to take a wild detour into fear as we reach the other side of the bridge. Chelsea Kowalski groaned as her 2001 Ford Taurus struggled to reach 70 miles an hour on the highway. She had been on I-75 heading northbound for a little over 10 hours. Chelsea was 22 and enrolled in college in Florida, where she attended Florida State University. However, Chelsea originally hailed from Bay City, Michigan. Therefore, every time it was a holiday, she'd have to trek hundreds of miles home. Chelsea longed for her sanctuary, her mother, her father, her high school sweetheart, Paul, and her little black cat, Nibbler. So here Chelsea was, hauling her hoopty up a steep incline amidst a snowstorm in late December, determined to return to Bay City. Pat Benatar was coming in and out of the radio, competing with some Tupac from another station. Chelsea mused to herself about a love is a battlefield and California love mashup, and even let out a little audible giggle at the thought. Just then, the radio cleared for the announcer to deliver the news, occasionally being interrupted by static. What is up, Northern Michigan? You are listening to 102.7 The Buzz. And I'm your host. It's currently 5 p.m., winding up the workday. December 21st, just a few days away from Christmas. Remember, folks, there is currently a winter weather advisory in effect until tomorrow. That means all you kiddos returning for the holidays, drive safe. Word has just come through that the Zilwaukee Bridge was closed due to an accident, so plan your route accordingly. Great. Chelsea tapped her fingers on the steering wheel as the blizzard she was in bombarded her small car. The engine whirred and whined as it fought for dear life in the hazardous conditions. The Zilwaukee Bridge went over part of Bay City and was the easiest way to get there. Chelsea knew that the exit that let you off before the bridge was another way to Bay City, but she had never taken it before. She quickly found herself approaching her old stomping grounds, unsure of what to do. She could pull over and check her map, but she wasn't sure if her car would be able to safely pull off the road and pull back on. Exit 171, Bay City, 9 miles. The sign alleviated some of her anxiety as she saw the outline of the Zilwaukee Bridge. The megastructure monstrosity illuminating the darkening Midwest sky greeted Chelsea. The structure was massive, hundreds of feet high and built from Michigan concrete. Paul used to always tell the story of it to Chelsea when they drove over it. Chelsea fell back into the warm memory of Paul's sweet podunk drawl and his cozy pickup truck. Some businessman didn't like how long it took to commute from Flint to Bay City, so he greased the palms of some certain governors, and millions of taxpayer dollars later, we got a big-ass bridge. Chelsea snapped from her musings as she approached her exit. Nervously, she merged right into the exit lane. The first thing she noticed was how steep it was on the other side of the exit. Her wheels creaked as she slowed down to 20 miles an hour, not wanting to take any chances. Jesus, take the wheel. Her eyes flicked to the rosary that hung from her dashboard. She gulped as she descended the hill, hands white at the knuckle from gripping her wheel so tight. Her thoughts fell to Paul again, how if she were in his truck with him, she would feel so safe coming down this hill. 
She thought of his denim blue jeans, thick woolly flannel, his bushy brown hair, and his deep, expressive blue eyes. The thought of her love and her unshakable faith kept her calm as she drew to the end of the steep hill. The exit came to a crossroads where Chelsea could turn right or left. Bay City was to the right, and to the left was the underside of the Zilwaukee Bridge. Chelsea started pressing the brake so she could stop before turning right, but they failed her. Her car screeched and skidded as it fishtailed and spun out of control. Lord have mercy! She fought to regain control of her vehicle, and as she said her little prayer, something must have been listening, because her car stopped. The Ford was on the left side of the crossroads, facing the bridge. Chelsea put her hazards on and looked around, trying to calm down. The road had six inches of snow easily, and it was very narrow, one lane going each way. There was no room to turn around. On either side of the road lay a deep ditch, reminding Chelsea how much danger she was in. She made the decision to follow the road until there was a decent place to turn around. Then she'd be home in no time. Chelsea took in her scenery. She sat below the massive bridge and beside an expansive river, frozen over but still terrifying. The snowy wind whipped under the bridge and created a symphony of deep, horrifying noises. With resolve in her mind and faith in her heart, Chelsea lurched forward. On her left were miles and miles of cornfields, and on her right was the frozen river. Both promised death should she crash into them, as she was the only car on this lonely road. No one would find her. The radio cut in and out. Chelsea hated that song, so creepy. She saw something in the distance that seemed odd to her, a billboard. It advertised, Mamma Mia's Pizza, Bay City, eight miles. That put her off because she knew the restaurant. It was, in fact, in Bay City, which was in the opposite direction. Chelsea's search for a turnaround got a little more frantic. Another sign caught her attention that made her uncomfortable. Bay City, five miles. To her knowledge, Bay City was completely in the opposite direction. So how was she getting closer? She began to reason with herself. She had never gone this way. Maybe she had been too turned around and was misremembering things. Houses came into view. Houses she recognized as being near Bay City. No point turning around now. She convinced herself that she must have been going the correct way all along. Streetlights came into view and the snow let up a bit and an audible sigh of relief escaped her lips. <sighs> home sweet home. The streets were barren save for piles of snow and empty cars. Not unusual for a blizzard, and Chelsea was still on the outskirts. Slowly, she came to an intersection and looked around. A final sign greeted her. Welcome to Bay City. And then, below that, established December 21st, 2020. Confusion flooded her. Was this some kind of joke? Bay City was an incredibly old place and certainly was not founded that very day. Despite the red flag, Chelsea resolved herself to continue her journey. She rolled past the light and saw her first sign of life pumping gas at the local station. The man was facing away from her, huddled close to his salt truck, bundled up in Carhartt and wool. Chelsea smiled, feeling a little less anxious now that she wasn't the only one outside. The joy left her as soon as the man turned around. His face was featureless. He had no eyes, no lips, nose, or mouth. He was smooth like the undisturbed snow on the ground. 
Chelsea gasped and drove faster, desperate to get home. She was on 31st Street now. She only had to get to 2nd and Lincoln. As soon as she saw Lincoln, she turned, not caring if her car spun. As she drove, she saw someone walking with a dog. She recognized the dog immediately, as there were not many golden retrievers in that area. It was her high school friend, Olivia, and her dog, Chip. Chelsea rolled down her window to call to her friend in a panic. But as soon as she did, Olivia's head snapped to Chelsea. Chelsea screamed as her friend's blank features tracked Chelsea's every move. How could she see me with no eyes? Her gaze turned to Chip. Even the dog bore no features, and he too followed her movements. Chelsea slammed her pedal to the metal and zipped down Lincoln Street as fast as her aging car would take her. Sobs racked her body as desperation filled her. She saw more and more people, all of them coming out of their homes with no regard for the blizzard, all lacking any features. Chelsea screamed as she saw a big pickup truck blocking the road, with a man standing in front of it. She slammed on the brakes and her car spun and spun, trying and failing to stop. Her Ford came to a rest on the sidewalk, now smoking from the engine. Life left the car as Chelsea tried fervently to start it back up. She looked out her window wildly and saw Paul's blank head right outside her window. She sobbed as he put a hand to the window and drew a heart in the snow that clung there. Chelsea did not know how she knew, but she knew he was smiling. I'm sorry, Paul. She unlocked the door and put all of her power into shoving the car door into him. Chelsea sprinted past his forlorn pickup truck and glanced at the street. Fifth and Lincoln, almost home, almost to safety. Chelsea took in her situation. She was surrounded by the faceless residents of Bay City, each of them slowly approaching her, making some kind of groan. She darted her head around and Paul was clambering to his feet and hundreds of other residents were closing in on her. Stranger still, most weren't even wearing winter clothes. The faceless mob had appeared as though they had been going about their business as usual when Chelsea had disturbed them. The creatures must have stopped what they were doing and redirected all of their attention to the woman who still bore a face. Chelsea turned on her heels and sprinted down Fifth Street, then found a house with only one of the faceless and barreled toward it. A child, clad in a pink onesie holding a stuffed unicorn, with big blonde curls and no face, watched as she bolted past it. Chelsea entered the backyard and clambered up the fence. She fell over with a thud and hauled herself to her feet. Chelsea repeated this course of action, descending through the houses of 4th, then 3rd Street. She looked about to see that every resident of Bay City was waiting for her on 2nd Street. Her sobs were all there was to be heard as she forced her way through a crowd of the faceless and to her front door. Mom! Dad! Chelsea slammed the door shut behind her and deadbolted it, then made her way further into her home. Her eyes caught the walls first, adorned with family photographs. She focused on one she could recognize even from a distance. It was Chelsea and her father at their church's father-daughter dance. His crisp gray suit and her soft yellow sundress glimmered in the light. Chelsea tried to focus on their faces as she slowly stepped toward it. The picture came fully into view. There they stood, at the father-daughter dance, with no faces. Chelsea knew at that moment, all was lost. She did not need to turn around to see her mother and father faceless and silent behind her. Despite the feeling in her gut, Chelsea turned to face them anyway. 
There stood her parents, embracing with one arm each and beckoning Chelsea with the other. Chelsea pushed right past them and ran up the stairs to her attic bedroom. She entered the untouched bedroom and slammed her door shut behind her, then pushed her antique vanity against it to ensure she would not be disturbed by those things. Chelsea looked to her bed and saw Nibbler asleep on her pillow, purring from somewhere inside herself, also bearing no face. She cried softly as she lay beside her feline friend, resigned to her new reality. Slowly, she drifted to sleep in her sadness. When Chelsea woke up, she immediately felt around for her cat, hoping to feel her crisp whiskers. She found Nibbler and realized her nightmare had not ended when she felt her smooth, furry face. More sobs befell Chelsea as woe filled her heart. She had wanted it all to be an awful dream so badly. Chelsea prayed to God that she would not have to live in the world of faceless men and women. A plot to escape began to formulate in her mind, but it was all very dependent on the aggression of the faceless and their willingness to let her leave. Chelsea swung her legs off the bed and tiptoed to the window, moved the curtain with one hand, and peeked outside. Every square foot surrounding her house was occupied by a faceless resident of her town, and everyone was looking right at her. Chelsea's parents and Paul stood shoulder to shoulder on her driveway, looking at her. They did not bear features, but if they did, they would have been of sorrow. Chelsea looked to Paul as he touched where his mouth would have been, and then pointed to Chelsea. Chelsea traced her lips with her index finger, and she internally moaned with horror. Chelsea's lips had no seam or part for which she could use to open her mouth. She ran to the vanity and watched as her lips completely fused together. She grunted and groaned as she watched her nose follow suit, and she suddenly felt as though she was suffocating. The bones of her nose cracked as her face completely flattened over the place where it used to reside. Chelsea could not fathom becoming like the faceless, and she could already feel her eyes getting tight and watery. She knew she would be blind soon. So, with resolve, she grabbed her crucifix from the wall and used it to smash her vanity. As her vision began to fail, Chelsea grabbed the biggest mirror shard, whimpered softly, and pressed it to her neck. Dark overtook her sight, and she used her free hand to feel her face. Smooth. Smooth like the unbroken snow. Smooth like the water on a beautiful summer day. Smooth like Paul's lips on hers, crooning to her in sweet submission. Chelsea thought of Paul, her parents, and Nibbler for a final passing thought as she dug the mirror shard across her neck. In her darkest moment, she saw light once more, and then was at peace. This is your host, here to bring you the news of the accident on the Zilwaukee Bridge this evening. Chelsea Kowalski, age 22, sadly was in a fatal accident this evening around 2 p.m. when...
focus on my voice. I rarely do this, but I find myself encouraging our listeners to descend into dreamland. Your head feels heavy. This time, though, I can't say why. All I can do is encourage you to listen to the advice shared with us by author James Carpenter. Your eyelids begin to droop. It's performed by Jessica McAvoy. The world begins to fade away. So relax, sink down into your comfortable bed. You're starting to fall under... When you were young, you had difficulty falling asleep. The usual tricks weren't working, so you hit upon another expedient. You decided to try to visualize something especially cozy and sleep-provoking in hopes that it might help you drift off. One image, or rather, narrative phrase, soon emerged. The image came from a story one of your school teachers had told you about a woman in Alaska, or someplace cold like that, who was carrying a present of thick bearskin to a neighbor about a day's walk away. About halfway through her walk, the woman was caught in a sudden snowstorm, which soon swirled so thickly around her that it became impossible for her to tell one direction from another. Realizing she would only become lost if she kept walking, she ate some of the food she had with her for the journey, wrapped herself all around with the bearskin, and laid down on the ground to sleep, letting the insulating snow pile over her. There, asleep under the bearskin, she waded out the storm. And when it was over, a day or two later, she stood folded up the bearskin, and continued on her way. Words were always the handle by which your mind most easily took hold of the world, and the words of this last part of the story, indeed its last sentence, almost verbatim, became your sleep invocation. In the course of time, you came to shorten it for easy use. First two, asleep under the bearskin, She waded out the storm. Then, too, asleep under the bearskin. And finally, simply to the word, under. This word, it seemed, was the very essence of your somniferous idea. Repeating it to yourself softly and hypnotically a number of times never failed to send you comfortably off to sleep. In fact, under soon came to seem very much the sleepiest word you knew, as from those first associations of warmth and safety in a hostile world, it threaded out through other, equally slumbersome ideas. Darkness, heaviness, removal from concern, under the raging surface of the sea, under the effect of an anesthetic, under consideration, underground. All of the word's momentum seemed to tend gently and inexorably toward quiet, stillness, and repose. 
For a while, you used your new mantra very easily and very effectively. It helped that your bed was a futon mattress, laid directly on the floor in a ground floor bedroom, allowing no childish thoughts of anything under you to disturb the peace your sleep word invoked. As you said the word under to yourself again and again, you felt as though you were gradually sinking with it into yourself, the mattress flattening to nothing beneath your back and the comforter piling higher and higher overhead, until under and you were identical and you were asleep. But words change, even words repeated time and again, perhaps especially these. Many of us will have had the experience as a child of repeating some word or phrase to ourselves, of turning it over diamond-wise in our minds until we notice things about it, certain curious tints and refractions that we had never noticed before. The more we turn it over and repeat it to ourselves, the more unusual a thing our diamond word becomes. It begins to seem alien, to lose its meaning and all sense of propriety, almost to be reduced to its mere sonic properties. We may forget how to spell it or how to use it. We may begin to come up with new meanings for it altogether. Gradually, we may feel the fabric of our mind shifting to accommodate it. The first changes to your sleep word were grammatical, the sort of silly wordplay one's half-awake mind will seize upon and make a game of. Under, you thought, sounded comparative, like deeper or heavier. Suppose there was also an undest, a furthest down, past which there was no under. Under would then mean a sort of intermediary position, not all the way below ground or asleep, but rather semi-buried, semi-still. This new conceit sat well with you, and you found nothing disturbing in it. If anything, it rounded out your picture of what it meant to be about to fall asleep. To be under was to be midway between sleep and waking, to be, as you were, on one's back, with one's eyes open, ready for sleep, but conscious still. Whimsically, you imagined your wide-awake self as being und, and your sleeping self as the absolute undest, with under the state between. A sort of open-eyed limbo in which sleep was beckoned, invited, or waited for. For a while, you continued to repeat the word to yourself in this meaning, incorporating other extensions into the concept. The ceiling was und, the ground beneath the house undest, and yourself under. Tomorrow would be und, yesterday was undest, and under was the moment you inhabited. The sleep word continued to work for you, even with its new meaning. And night after night, you fell asleep without trouble, repeating it to yourself quietly under your covers. No doubt this played some part in its further transformation. But whatever the reason, 
one evening, you suddenly heard it differently. Now you heard it as under, as though the word were a negation, like unclean or untrue. Under. What then was der? Well, that was not so difficult. It sounded something like dirt to you, and so under was undirty. From there, it was no great leap to connect the word with the scrubbed, clean-smelling self you became before you went to bed. It was your damp hair, soap-scented, your warm skin quickly growing cooler in the night air. It was your last moment of innocent wakefulness before sleep came. Your mother's voice, far away in sound and memory. Get to bed now, get to bed. Yet the imaginary word der also rang dead and inert on the inner ear. A still lump of a word. So under became imbued also with a smooth, fresh motion, the sliding of a current beneath the surface of still waters, the coursing of blood beneath skin. If under was to be half asleep on your back, it was to be moved too, pulled along willy-nilly toward sleep by a force almost too gentle to notice. It was a motion you could sometimes feel as you drifted off. Even here, beneath the repetitions of your sleep word, a sliding sound, soft as a drawer on well-oiled rails. If these details of your thoughts are silly to rehearse, it is in no way contrary to the silliness you felt in thinking them. To your childish mind, always engaging in these little acts of wordplay with the strange obsessiveness of half-dream. It was no more than a game of inner sounds, if not a game you could escape or control. The conceits were laughable, the connections novel to you. But this, too, would change. It was the sound that would bring it all together for you under that last cohesive idea that muffled, sliding along, like some great snake moving its massive body along underground. By whatever magic that sound had become associated with the word under, its association became complete, and soon you began to hear it every time you thought of the word. Then, as you attended to it, your curiosity deepened into confusion as first you suspected, and then you knew that the sound, too, was changing. Growing louder, closer, as though you were calling something toward yourself. Yet by now you could not but fixate on your sleep word. And still you spoke it to yourself in the dark. Even now that you were sure you were speaking it to something else. How many words can we hear in so many ways? Was this word more susceptible to such repetition, such change, than others? Or was it only you? Can a single word ever come to hypnotize more than one person in the same way? For you, 
The final change was rapid, uncontrollable. The moment of loss, when you realized you were no longer steering the sled that carried you down the snowy hill. You began to attach a wholly different meaning to the word under. You began to think of a person with all the attributes you'd attached to it before. A person who, like you, laid half asleep on his back. A person who slid underground from one place to another. Unmoving himself but swift whenever he was moved. Whenever you moved him. You thought of his passage beneath slats of sun through floorboards, beneath nail holes of moonlight. You felt the fall of dust particles onto open eyes. It was he who made the sound you imagined. The sound of him gliding along beneath the surface of the world, aware but passive as a corpse. And as you repeated your sleep word, like sleep, he moved closer to you, bringing his muffled sound closer to... Under, you now knew, was a name, and its bearer was coming when called. Yet each night you fell asleep, and in the morning you awoke unrested, your mind troubled. Each night the sound became louder, until it ceased altogether, as though under had come as close as it could come. And then one morning, you did not awaken. You opened your eyes, or you must have. They have remained open ever since. Yet you did not wake, or not fully. You saw nothing above you but the minute places where the light broke through. You could not speak, nor can you now. You do not move, or any way move yourself. Sometimes you are moved, slid a tantalizing inch or two, in the direction of whatever voice you hear distantly calling to you. But it never calls to you more than once or twice, and you hear little else. Though that first morning you did hear, clearly, the bounding away of footsteps above you in joy and relief. Footsteps at last freed from who knows how long a bondage to take your place as you had taken his. Can a single word ever come to hypnotize more than one person? Surely it must. Surely, someday in these unbroken reaches of time, there will be someone else who comes to think of this word in the same way you did. To repeat it to call it out silently so many times to themselves that by strange degrees it becomes the word they use to call out to you. Asleep under the bear skin, she waited out the storm. How long will you wait?
Well, I think it's time we get this show back on the rails. Ah, trains. Such an elegant method of travel. But in this tale, shared with us by author C.E. Bunyan, we find our journey brought to an unceremonious halt underground, and there's something out there in the darkness. Performing this tale are Aaron Lillis, Mary Murphy, Dan Zapula, Kyle Akers, Matthew Bradford, and David Alt. So sit there and wait for rescue deep beneath the earth. There's nothing else you can do, so you might as well listen to The Tickers on the Train. It was late, it was raining, and it was cold. I'd been standing waiting on this platform for nearly half an hour. The rain came down in sheets, smacking off the metal roof with a distinctive drumming that usually I would find soothing were I not trapped outside in insufficient clothing. I adjusted the weight of my dance bag on my shoulder, kicking myself for not getting out of there just a few minutes sooner. I sighed and let my mind wander off to my tiny, warm apartment and my even warmer girlfriend. I couldn't wait to crawl into bed with her and just fall asleep. The crackle of the old speakers and the vaguely British voice of the pre-recorded announcement snapped me out of my cozy fantasy. I looked down the track to see the train coming around the bend, headlamps cutting through the veil of steady rain. The old rattling machine rolled to a stop at the platform. I darted through the rain as quickly as possible and into the car. As I took my seat, I noted that there were only three other people riding with me. A teenage punk couple dressed in bright colors, sharing one pair of earbuds while they giggled and kissed and an exhausted-looking mid-thirties man in an expensive but rumpled suit leaning against the window and staring at his phone. My own phone buzzed, and I pulled it out to take a look. A text from my girlfriend. Hey, baby, I tried, but I can't stay up anymore. I'm going to bed. Love you. Hope you had a good rehearsal. I smiled and texted back a quick, I love you, good night, message before I lost service. Then I settled back, plugged in my headphones, and watched the city disappear as the train was swallowed up by the tunnel. I was startled out of my reverie when the train suddenly screeched to a halt, pitching me forward almost completely off my seat. My headphones flew off, and I heard the others in the car around me cry out in shock as the train shuddered to a dead stop. The same pre-recorded British voice from the platform crackled over the PA. Obstruction on the track. Emergency brakes engaged. At least we know the brakes work. I looked up, and a freckled redhead was smiling back at me. I must not have noticed her get on at a previous stop. Kayla! Hi! 
I switched seats to wrap my old friend up in a hug. I pulled back to face her so she could read my lips and see my hands as I spoke. I thought you moved. I did. She looked tired, like she's been tired for years. The kind of tired that goes right down to the soul. How's, uh... I racked my brain, trying to remember her husband's name. Jeff. He's, uh... I left him. Left him and came home. She looked broken in the way battered women often are. I didn't ask her to elaborate. We continued to chat silently in rusty sign language for a while, carefully avoiding any heavy topics. Until all at once, the train lurched and started to roll again. Backwards this time. It barely moved for a minute before it suddenly stopped again, brakes groaning against the metal tracks. That same pre-recorded voice came on. Obstruction on the track. Emergency brakes engaged. What the fuck? One of the punk boys, who had a cloud of bright pink curly hair, stood up and pulled the emergency alert bell and waited. There was no response. He pulled it again. Nothing. I flinched hard as a sudden skittering sound clicked across my window. I looked at the window in shock. Kayla caught my gaze in confusion. Weird noise, I signed at her as I continued to squint out the window. The kid was yanking on the bell while his boyfriend laughed. He hollered as if the conductor could hear him in the last car. Hello! It's not working, kid. Just relax. The kid flipped off the businessman and plopped back down in his seat. I checked my phone. No bars. I knew that before I looked. I heard the ticking noise again. Like someone drumming their nails on the window. But when I turned to look, there was nothing there. An hour passed with no information. By the 45-minute mark, we had given up railing against the inevitable and were ready to just wait it out. The skittering and clicking never stopped. In fact, it only got louder. Like nails or claws tapping on the metal of the train car. And it was setting us all on edge. Even Kayla, who, despite not being able to hear it, was picking up on the tension. Mr. Businessman was up listening at a window, trying to see what was making the persistent noise. Desperate for anything to occupy my time, I stood and joined him. Do you think it's the engine cooling down because we're stopped or something? These trains run on electrical power. I inched closer to the window, pressing my ear to the glass. 
heart picking up its pace in my chest. Click, 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 in rapid succession right by my face. I gasped and jerked back. Mr. Business looked at me, then pressed his ear to the glass, too. Another quick series of clicks, much more obvious this time. He didn't jump like I did, only turned to the window, cupping his hands over the glass to squint out into the darkness. What the hell is that? I was vaguely aware of the two boys and Kayla approaching us, too. The sound skittered across the roof, and we all moved as if to duck from the noise. What can you hear? I quickly explained as best I could. She drummed her long fingernails on the inside of the window. Exactly. Just way louder. All of us jumped as something tapped along with Kayla's nails, seeming to match her rhythm. She frowned and pulled her hand away from the glass. I felt that. A cacophony of scuttling, scrabbling, clicking sounds erupted around us again. Whatever was out there sounded like it was running down the side of the car. Okay, this is freaking me the fuck out. Pinkhair's boyfriend had shaggy blonde hair and wore aviator-style glasses that kind of gave him a Jeffrey Dahmer vibe. I wondered if that was intentional. There has to be more than one. More than one what? You're talking like these are things. Maybe they are. <laughs> Pinkhair growled cartoonishly before seizing Dahmer around the middle laughing as Dahmer scolded him. Oh, stop Stop it! What? What? As the boys laughed, I realized the noise seemed to have died down. The ticking was gone. Hey, guys! I pointed at the ceiling of the car. It stopped. Maybe it was just an animal that... We were suddenly plunged into absolute darkness. We all screamed as the ticking and skittering started coming from all directions, like a swarm of massive bugs rushing up the sides of the train car. We frantically dug into our pockets, and one by one, bright, icy blue cell phone flashlights came on. We crushed ourselves together and aimed our lights outward, giving into our instinctive knowledge that there was safety in numbers. I stared at the window as my eyes adjusted to the sudden dark. And I swear, something looked back. I was frozen in terror, bile rising in my throat as understanding flared bright and true. Whatever this was, we were just its prey. And we didn't stand a chance. I backed up further into the embrace of my newfound packmates as a beam of someone's flashlight crossed the window, and whatever it was looking back at me seemed to glitch away. What the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck do we do now? Dahmer was panicking. 
pink hair just looked shocked, staring, pupils blown wide in fear despite the bright flashlights in his face. Kayla gripped my hand tightly, and Mr. Business had his eyes glued to the window in front of us. I caught his eye, and we shared a brief moment where we knew we both saw it. We all jumped again and turned toward the sound coming from the left this time. I flashed my light at the window and saw another twitchy shadow. Dahmer let out a scream, slapping his hands over his ears, turning his face into Pink Hair's shoulder. We couldn't just stand here anymore. I could feel the fear spiking in my chest like ice. One more bang and I'd be sobbing too. I reached out and grabbed Dahmer's shoulder, spinning him to face me and giving him a shake. This close, I realized this poor kid was barely 16 and his boyfriend no older. Hey, Dahmer, look at me. The kid blinked. What did you call me? I smiled weakly. I don't know, your look is giving me Jeffrey Dahmer vibes, and I didn't know your name, so... Who's Jeffrey Dahmer? Okay, not an intentional look. Google it when we get out of here, kid. What's your real name? Milo. Good. And your boyfriend? Elliot. Hi, I'm Corey. My friend's name is Kayla. I'm, uh, Jackson. When I looked over, I realized he was signing the names for Kayla. Slowly and awkwardly, but Kayla seemed impressed. So was I. Why are we doing this fucking sharing circle when we need to leave? Elliot's frozen terror was momentarily taken over by panicky anger. I glared at him. You want to go out there with whatever the hell is making that racket? Elliot deflated slightly. Guys, here. Suddenly, our section of the car was flooded with an eerie green light. I looked. Jackson had pulled out an emergency kit from under the seat and found a handful of emergency glow sticks. He cracked two more, tossed one to me, and hung the other from the now useless pull cord. I followed suit, washing us all in green. The skittering noises seemed to back away from the windows and were now coming from the roof and below the windows. Jackson reapproached the group. These are supposed to last up to 12 hours. Turn off your phone's flashlights. Try to conserve their batteries as long as you can. I paused before turning off my phone, quickly tapping out a text message that I knew wouldn't send. I love you, Sophie. Be home soon. Kayla noticed and squeezed my shoulder. What are we going to do now? Elliot's voice had gone quiet. All his punk kid bravado dissipated in the reality of our situation. I barely heard him over the constant ticking. Both he and Milo were pressed close to Kayla, who looked at me as if to say, I'm following you. Jackson and I exchanged a look of understanding. 
we had become the de facto parents of our strange little survival family. We wait. I translated for Kayla. They won't leave us down here. Someone has to know there is a train stalled in the tunnel. They will send someone to get us. Milo eyed the window. What about the ticker things? I think maybe they don't like light. I nodded in agreement. She's right. As long as we have light, they aren't getting in. We stay here, stay together, we'll be okay. I put on what I thought was a hopeful smile. Worst case scenario, we're here till morning. We didn't make it that long. The ticking never stopped. It would ebb and flow, sometimes just one clicking nail tapping incessantly. Sometimes a cacophony of bangs and scratches and shrieking metal so violent that the train seemed to rock on the track. Kayla was teaching Elliot bits of sign language while Milo slept, curled around a glow stick. Poor kid was the most terrified of any of us. I stood at the back of the train car looking out into the blackness. My face reflected back at me in creepy green tinge, like something out of a bad horror movie. This whole thing was like a bad horror movie. I had fallen so far into the fear that I wasn't even reacting to it anymore. My hands had stopped shaking, my breathing had evened out, and I felt like all my senses were dialed up to 11 as I tried to be constantly aware of my surroundings. I had no idea how Milo could have fallen asleep, but fear affects us all differently, I suppose. I turned and slid down the wall to sit on the floor beside Jackson, who had long since abandoned his blazer and tie, and was sitting cross-legged, poring over a map. What's that? Found a map of the subway in with the glow sticks. I think I figured out where we are. Oh, yeah? I leaned over Jackson's shoulder as he drew an X on the map with a sharpie. I don't know how this helps at all, but it's giving me something to do. How did you figure that out? I was impressed. The map just looked like a mess of lines to me. I like long-haul hiking. I'm, I'm good with maps. The nail clicked hard against the outside of the carriage, and Jackson flinched. How are you so calm? I was in a tornado once. It flattened our house and a dozen others in my neighborhood. Me and my brother were stuck in our basement under the rubble for two days before rescuers dug us out. Jackson looked shocked. Jesus, that must have been scary. When was this? I was 12. My brother was only four. Our parents worked late and we were always home alone before our parents got back. One day, there was this wicked storm while we were walking home. We barely got downstairs before the twister touched down next door. I'm telling you, it was the loudest noise I have ever heard, bar none. This 
doesn't even remotely compare. Damn. A moment of silence passed. His expression a mixture of sympathetic and impressed. What about you? You don't look like an outdoorsy type. Jackson raised an eyebrow at me. I'm an insurance broker. I hate it. It's stressful and exhausting, and my co-workers are insane, but man, it pays well. If I get out of here... When? Kayla and Elliot came to sit with us, leaving Milo to snore a few feet away. When? I'm quitting. I'm gonna take my savings, buy a great big dog, and go live on a mountain somewhere. Sounds nice. I'm gonna raise my daughter. My head snapped to Kayla. You're pregnant? I left Jeff when I found out. I decided I'd rather be a single mom than let that man anywhere near my baby. Good for you. He always was a prick. Jackson offered her a hand. She took it almost shyly. That bravery alone is going to make you a great mom. Even in the low light, I could see your blush. Jackson turned to Elliot. So, how long have you and Milo been together? Oh, uh... He looked at his phone. Five hours? We hooked up at a trade show. Jackson blinked, and then all at once, beyond all reason, <laughs> we were laughing. Why? Jackson ruffled his pink curly hair. Oh, young love. <laughs> we all laughed again. It was like getting a fit of giggles at a funeral. The most inappropriate moment to laugh. And suddenly everything is funnier than it has ever been in your whole life. We had all but tuned out the clattering racket outside. We didn't notice the light suddenly go dark a few feet ahead of us. Until Milo screamed. We all launched into action. The banging on the outside of the train car erupted. Screeching metallic noise as a door was clawed open. And Milo was being dragged backwards towards the black gap where the door used to be. The glow stick was tangled in his jacket. The light muted. He must have rolled over it in his sleep. He wailed in terror. His hand scrambling against the riveted floor. gone before any of us knew it, dragged out into the dark, taking the glow stick with him. We were all momentarily frozen, eyes wide, staring at the open doorway. A glitching claw curled around the door and an eye, a, a horrible milky eye, peeked inside. What the fuck? was my only coherent thought as I held on to a sobbing Elliot. The thing was revoltingly ethereal. You couldn't look straight at it without feeling like you were going to vomit. The ticking came back, 
stuttering sound as the thing moved further into the car. Its movements jerky and uh, unnatural. Suddenly, light broke me from my trance as Kayla darted past me, glow stick in hand, and flung it out the door. It seemed to phase through the creature, but it reacted anyway, letting out an unholy screeching noise as it recoiled from the light now pooling in the tracks. The creature's wail made us all slam our hands over our ears. Even Kayla reacted to the sound, face screwed up in something like surprise. It sounded almost mechanical, like metal screeching against concrete, and radio white noise dialed up to a thousand. When the noise finally stopped, my ears rang like a fire alarm and blood dripped from my nose. But the frozen moment didn't last long as Elliot suddenly tore himself from my grip and, before any of us could stop him, leapt out the open door and into the light puddle. He snapped up the glow stick and took off around the back of the train car, screaming for his boyfriend. Milo! There was a Milo! frantic skittering sound as the creatures realized someone had left the car. I raced to the back window, watching Elliot's light bobbing in the dark. He spun around and frantically called out Milo's name, his voice echoing back to us strangely. Where's Kayla? I wheeled around. She'd gone out the door after Elliot. Fuck! I banged my fist on the wall as panic rocketed up in my chest. I turned the handle and shouldered open the back door as Kayla's light approached Elliot's. What the fuck was she thinking? The door popped open. Cold, muddy-smelling air hit me in the face as Jackson and I held our lights out into the dark. Jackson's hand was in mine, and we clung on tightly as we watched Kayla approach the panicked kid with the same careful steps one might approach a snarling dog. I eyed the twitching, jerking shapes as they seemed to hover at the edges of the light. Claws tapping and scraping on the concrete walls and the metal tracks. Slowly, agonizingly slowly, Kayla and Elliot made their way back. I could hear Elliot's racking breaths and Kayla talking. Ticking shifted as the things closed in behind them, herding them back towards the train car. Come on, Elliot, we're almost here. Come on. I moved aside as Elliot stepped up. I moved my hand down. I moved the light inside I cast Kayla's left half in darkness, and I sealed her fate. Kayla stepped up into the car a half second too late. She screamed in pain, and Jackson swore as she collapsed in his arms. Fuck! Her hands were scrambling against the massive, arcing wound that extended from her chest and curved down towards her hip. Her chest heaved in pain and panic. The wound literally sizzled and hissed as she screamed in agony. I dropped to my knees beside her as Jackson laid her down on the floor. 
she's writhed and cried, pleading prayers coming out of her mouth in a garbled slur. I tried to pull her shirt back to get a better look, only to realize it had been all but melted into the wound. The smell of frying skin, like burnt bacon, suddenly hit me and I gagged. We need water, fresh water. My, my dance bag. I pointed as Elliot darted for the bag and pulled out my massive water bottle, bringing it to me. Pour it slowly into the wound. Jackson was all but shouting over the screech of angry ticking outside. Elliot, hold her feet. Kayla recoiled as Elliot gripped her ankles and Jackson held her tightly. This is going to hurt. I'm sorry. I said, signing to Kayla before starting to pour the water over the wound. Kayla's anguished scream broke my heart. Tears ran down my nose as the wound bubbled and frothed, foaming like dropping a spoonful of baking soda into a glass of vinegar. I couldn't tell if it was helping or hindering as Kayla squirmed and sobbed before finally passing out. Jackson checked her pulse and nodded at me to keep going. I used up my water and Jackson's to clean out the rest of the wound. Eventually, it stopped sizzling and hissing and seemed to cool. I sat back against the seat, threw the bottle aside, and wiped the tears from my eyes. I looked at my companions, injured, traumatized, and lost. We can't stay here. Kayla won't make it till morning. Jackson let out a shuddering breath. Right. Right, okay. He pulled the map out of his back pocket and laid it out on the floor. Look, we are here. Which means our closest platform is... here. He ran his finger along the image of the tracks and tapped on a platform marked on the map. How far is that? A kilometer, maybe slightly more. What about her? I'll carry her. I nodded and looked between us. Okay, let's get the hell out of here. I threw one of our glow sticks down on the ground outside the train car. We stepped carefully down into the green pool. First myself, then Jackson with the semi-conscious Kayla cradled in his arms. And finally Elliot who was shaking like a leaf. Slow and steady is the name of the game here. Move together, keep all hands and feet inside the circle of light at all times. My pathetic attempt at levity fell flat. I tossed the glow stick in my hand a few feet ahead, and we quickly stepped out of one circle of light and into another. Elliot picked up the previously dropped one as we made it into the light. 
This way, we kept all sides of us lit at any given moment. And so it went, inch by inch. We slowly crawled towards safety. All the glitching creatures chittering and ticking with increased agitation in our peripheries. A kilometer had never felt so far. Jackson directed us to make turn after turn until finally there it was, glowing like a beacon. Platform. Large lights were so bright it almost made my eyes water. Or maybe I was crying tears of relief. We were almost out of this nightmare. And then I stumbled and dropped my ballistic. I covered my mouth in shock as we watched as the light rolled to a stop in a pool of blood illuminating the half-consumed corpse of Milo. The creatures shrieked and jerked back from their meal. His legs were burned and chewed. Great awful chunks of flesh ripped away like they were working from the bottom up. We couldn't move for the shock. Then, horribly, Milo did. His chest heaved a shallow, ragged breath. We're still alive. Elliot screamed and ran for him, brandishing the light stick like a sword, warding off the creatures as he lunged for his boyfriend, shoes squelching in the blood and viscera. Kayla started to wake up as Elliot tried to haul Milo back towards the group. I bounced on the edge of the light, twitching with the urge to go help, covering my mouth, muffling my gasps as Milo let out horrid, gurgling screams, his ruined legs dragging bone and meat in their wake. Elliot could barely budge him a few feet before Milo was begging him to stop. Elliot suddenly shouted, Sounding braver than I'd heard him yet. Go! Elliot, get back here! I'm not gonna leave him! We were two tiny pools of light, standing too far apart for any of us to risk running to the other. We couldn't move without risking exposing a limb to the dark. We were stuck. Elliot and I stared at one another in the din tried to ignore the creature's ticking and the agonized moans of Milo. I watched as Elliot turned his gaze from me and pressed his lips fiercely to Milo's. He looked back at me once more, then threw the light stick to us. Fumbled but managed to catch it. The last thing I heard of Elliot was his screams mingling with the otherworldly shriek of the creatures and scratch and click of their claws on concrete as they descended. I reached for Kayla and Jackson. We don't have time. We have to go while they're distracted. Come on. We put Kayla between us and started to move as fast as we could. 
All sense of caution was gone as we half hobbled, half ran for the safety of the platform. My heart hammered, my body ached, my ears were ringing, but we kept going, gasping with the effort, terror making our lungs weak. Got over halfway there before the creatures noticed we were gone. Then that awful skittering noise started to rush down the tunnel towards us again. Jackson scooped Kayla into his arms again and we were off at a dead run, feet crunching against the gravel. The light was a few feet ahead. Safety was a few feet ahead. I almost let myself believe we'd get out of this alive. I stepped into the light first as a thump and a grunt behind me told me Jackson fell. I wheeled around as he and Kayla hit the ground hard. Kayla cried out as she tumbled from his arms. She rolled into the light and went still. Jackson was scrambling to his feet and I reached into the dark to grab him. I got him by a fistful of shirt and then we both jolted in surprise and froze. The burning smell hit me first. That sick, fatty, meaty smell of burnt human flesh hit my nose and stung my eyes. I gasped on reflex and nearly choked on the taste of the singed flesh on my tongue. Jackson's eyes weren't scared, just defeated. He offered me a tiny smile before he was just gone. Disappearing into the black. He didn't even scream. I stumbled back. Fell. I tried to catch myself. Only to discover my arm was gone. Sliced off above the elbow in a sizzling, blackened stump. I gagged and looked away dragging myself on one arm towards Kayla as the searing pain sunk in. I looked out into the black. I made myself watch as the creatures twitched on the edge of the light. In a moment of defiance and rage, I grabbed our last glow stick and hurled it into the black, hoping to hit one just to watch it suffer. But I missed... My aim thrown off from pain and shock and adrenaline. The glow stick landed a few feet down the tunnel and I nearly vomited when I saw three silhouetted figures in the dark. And I collapsed. Next train, city center, on track one. The janitor would find us, lying on the track on the brink of death sometime later. After that, it was a blur of EMTs and flashing lights. When I eventually did wake up, it was to learn that Kayla survived, but her baby didn't. My arm had to be amputated at the shoulder to get above what the doctors called an infection. And despite both of us telling the same story, no one could even find the train, let alone the bodies of our friends. I am not crazy. 
I know what we saw. I know what we heard. I know what we lost. And I don't care what anyone else says. They were real. Real enough that when the storm knocked out power to the hospital for just the briefest of moments during my stay, I heard the sound of nails ticking against metal under my bed. final tale. We submerge into the past to join the crew of the avid pursuit way up in the Arctic North. They're attempting to break new ground by finding, or creating, the first passage through the ice. But in this tale, shared with us by author Maxwell Mare, it's no longer smooth sailing when the drill hits a snag. Performing this tale are Peter Lewis, Andy Cresswell, James Cleveland, Graham Rowett, Jake Benson, and David Alt. So with the rations running out, with patience and tempers beginning to fray, it's time to take a dive down to discover what waits below. The submarine Avid Pursuit had finally left port on a dreary March morning in 1885. If all had gone well, it would have been a month earlier, in February, but the initial tests of the ice drill built into its back had yielded nothing but screeching, metal-rending disaster, and the engineers had spent weeks tearing at their hair before eventually reaching success. It is nearing the end of May now. And as he watches the dim arctic sun ripple in long shafts through the water outside the portholes, Chief Engineer William Audley cannot help but feel the slightest bit of trepidation at what should happen if the admittedly rushed job on the drill does not turn out to be as effective as he'd promised the captain. Even if this vessel would be the first to find passage through these northern waters, avid pursuit would undoubtedly see winter before they crossed into the Pacific, and winter meant great colossal sheets of ice that to any other vessel would have been deemed entirely impenetrable. Even now the ice is audibly shifting, the low melodic creaking echoing like some strange forgotten song along the corridors of the submarine, punctuated by the echo of footsteps, the shouts of men, the vague reassurance that although the world outside is changing, inside there is routine. Shoving his hands into his peacoat pockets, Audley steps away from the porthole to return to his place in the boiler room. In his office, Captain Allard stares over steepled fingers at the first mate, who stands in front of the room's large oaken desk. You aren't serious? I'm afraid so, sir. I've triple-checked the stores myself. If I were to make a guess, the shipments were mixed up before the voyage even began. 
And we have exactly how much coal remaining at present? If conditions are favourable, there should be no issues at all, but... If conditions are favourable? Yes, sir. Allard pinches the bridge of his nose, lets out a sigh. I'm not about to scuttle the mission over a hypothetical. There's too much riding on our success. Don't notify the crew about the shortage. I'm sure the engineers are already aware. Naturally. Don't let them spread word of it. If conditions are indeed favorable, no one need know. Of course, sir. With a salute, the first mate turned sharply on his heel, but the doubt written across his face betrays the false bravado. The captain awakes, shivering, bolt upright, from the same recurring vision that has plagued him since before the submarine never put out to sea. He can still see it in his head. The image is only just beginning to fade with the relieving ignorance of wakefulness. He had been held, suspended as though drifting in deep water, the icy creep of frigid currents gnawing at his fingers and face. Sinking, drowning, he had known no reason why, but all around, all-consuming, was a deep, low vibration of breath or perhaps of movement, the shifting of something unseen far, far below. It rings in his ears, a grating, constant, dizzying pressure against his eardrums. It is intolerable. And yet, as he'd sunk in the dream, he understood that at the time it had felt as though all was right. The cold, the inexorable current of the abyssal depths, it is where he was meant to go, where he was always meant to go. No, he shakes his head as he peels the freezing, sweat-drenched sheets off of himself. He is not one to believe in dreams and visions, and never has been. Now, when he has an entire crew of men under his responsibility, is certainly not the time to start. Rising, he forces the images from his mind, but he cannot forget what he has heard deep in the recesses of his mind. The shifting waits. By late August, the cold and ice have set in unlike anything that could have been predicted. Oddly paces the floor of the engine room, back and forth, forth and back, his boots clanking over the metal plating. Along the wall to his left, the dials and levers of the ice drill sit inert, waiting. The vessel will need to surface again, soon, to replenish its supply of oxygen, but with each passing day the ice grows thicker, and his faith in the drill's integrity lessens. Everything has worked so far, but this is only August, and if conditions were to worsen as the short summer season draws to an end... And, of course, there is the matter of the coal. The estimate he'd given the first mate months ago now seems overly optimistic at best, and utterly foolhardy at worst. Avid pursuit has not been making the time he'd expected, but all the coal in England is meaningless if they cannot drill to reach the oxygen above the ice. Shaking his head, he yanks down the lever to bring the ice drill to life. The room fills with the familiar jarring whir and clank as the machinery begins to turn. With a flat iron clang, the wrench falls from Audley's hand as, with a sharp screech of rending metal, the mechanics of the drill fall still, horribly still. 
Audley rattles the lever in place, shifts it back, and then forwards again. Nothing. He checks the fuel supply to the drill, the myriad of dials displaying its force and pressure, every feasible source of where something could have gone wrong. Nothing. Slowly his attention turns to the portholes, to the deep grey water beyond. Whatever has stopped the drill, it came from outside. One of the crew is sent out to examine the ice drill later that day. Captain Allard watches him go, watches the bulky grey-brown diving suit float upwards and disappear into the murk. Staring after him intently through the porthole, Allard awaits the news the crewman might bring on his return. He waits, and he waits, and he waits. It should not take this long. There has been no movement along the tether, no signal to be pulled back in. Something is wrong. The captain signals the team to bring the diver back. They reel the diver in by the cord that kept him tethered to the submarine. His limbs move loosely, limply with every tug of the cable. They heave the bulky brass and oiled canvas suit through the hatch, but the diver collapses on the floor. When the helmet is removed, there is only seawater pouring to the deck in a cascade of salty green. There are no breaks or tears in the suit, and no way for the crewman to remove it without the assistance of the dive team. The frigid water pours from the empty neck hole, sloshing across the submarine's floors. Captain Allard turns to the shocked crowd that had gathered as the suit was dragged from the water. His voice is low, tight. Not a word of this leaves this room. The rest of the crew does not hear of this. Do you understand? There are a few nods from the group, uncertain and unconvincing. If you find anything, any sign that this man... He prods the empty diving suit with the toe of his boot. ...is still out there somewhere, or hell, if he's somehow still in here, you will notify me immediately. I want him found, or I want him forgotten. What I don't want is a mass panic. And if the crew starts believing in disappearing men and suits full of seawater, that's exactly what we'll get. One of the men clears his throat, speaks up timidly. Uh, begging your pardon, sir, but, uh, isn't disappearing men and suits full of seawater more or less what we all just saw? Captain Allard fixes his withering gaze upon him, eyes shadowed with unspoken fears. And to anyone who isn't here at present, you never saw anything at all. Hanging the suit back in its place on the wall, he stalks off down the corridor in silence. The empty window of the diving helmet seems to stare after the crew as they disperse, crystals of ice and salt sliding down its glass as it thaws. William Audley watches the captain as the man draws in a long, shaking inhale, and then another, and then speaks. Audley. Captain. If I recall, before we left for this voyage, you told me this drill was in perfect functioning condition. Allard gestures sharply toward the ice drill's controls. That's correct, sir. And? And now it isn't. You mean to tell me you cost me months of delay for a faulty drill? It's not the drill that's faulty, sir. It wasn't the ice that broke it. 
The captain hesitates a moment. His mind flashes to shapes shifting in the abyss. The rhythmic pressure, the icy cold, the salt in his mouth, the empty suit. The engine room is hot, stifling. The captain coughs and says, What? It never reached the ice, sir. Stopped before it possibly could have. What exactly are you implying? Oddly shrugs. Can't say. Just that something out there stopped it and it wasn't the ice. You are aware of what this means for avid pursuit, aren't you? And for the crew. You mean that we're running out of oxygen by the hour until I can fix the ice drill? Of course I'm aware. And do you have a solution in mind? William Audley stands in silence for a long moment. The thrum of the submarine's engines fills the ears of the two men. I'm afraid, Captain, that I don't. That night, a crewman lies awake in his hammock, whispering his story to those who will listen. You know Jim Cowden, how he went up to look at the drill. A murmur of acknowledgement from those awake. He volunteered for it, you know. Hardly had to be asked. Said the strangest thing to me before he put on the suit. Something about going out there to meet something or someone or... Well, I'm not really sure what he meant. But I can't help but feel like it wasn't the drill he was going on about. So this thing he was going out there for was watching us all the time. That it was waiting. Another voice speaks up. Waiting? What for? The crewman shrugs, the hammock's hemp lines creaking. I've got the faintest idea. Since he said it, though, and even more since he hasn't come back, I can't shake the feeling of being watched myself. See, the thing is, right before they reeled in Cowden's suit, I'd been looking out in the water, trying to spot him. Never did. But there was something else out there, way down. Something moving. Yeah. Usually we call those fish. There is strained laughter among the surrounding crew. Oh, don't be a moron. You know I don't mean fish. This is something bigger than any fish. Didn't get a good look at it, but I bet it must have taken up the whole seafloor down there. Just twisting round and round itself like some tangled knot. I couldn't stare at it too long before my eyes started to hurt. And then they brought Cowden's suit back in and, well, there was nothing but seawater spilling onto the deck and... Well, you know, the rest is what it is. Another vague murmur. Of course they know. But it is more difficult now to ignore the minute creaking of the vessel, to dismiss it as nothing, to not think that perhaps just below the persistent engine hum, can they not hear something twisting and turning beneath, something that is no longer waiting Captain Allard sits behind his oaken desk, struggling to ignore the haziness in his mind, the increasingly stagnant taste of the submarine's stale air. And how long did you say we had left? He is repeating himself, he knows. The question has already been answered, but he struggles to keep hold on the information. The first mate is not standing so much as unsteadily leaning on the chair to his left. Avid Pursuit needs to surface every 75 hours, sir. It's been over 80 hours now since we've taken in fresh air. Of course, it'll take time to fully deplete the oxygen we have left, but we're on borrowed time already. 
My estimate gives us all somewhere under 24 hours remaining. Allard runs a hand over his face. Christ. Any word from the engineers? None, sir. And the navigator? Has he found anything? No breaks in the ice? Nowhere we could go from here? We've been pushing onwards for days with no sign of anything of the like. Not to mention the navigator's zigzag search pattern is using our fuel faster than expected. Could be dangerously depleting our coal stores, which I'm sure you remember... I know about the bloody coal! That's just it, sir. The coal situation is more dire than we thought. Either the estimate given to us those months ago was far too high, or... Or? Or someone's done something, sir. Done something? The sour air is hurting Allard's head. You suggest we have a saboteur on board? Or saboteurs, yes. It's a distinct possibility, sir. What exactly, then, do you suggest be done about it? To be perfectly honest, I'm not sure there's anything that can be done. Not at this point. We've only hours of oxygen left, sir. If there are saboteurs, when we sink, the pressure will crush them in this tin can along with the rest of us. Outside, the storytelling crewman sinks ever downwards, eyes staring through the round glass window of the diving suit, watching as the dim bluish light through the ice above ripples through the water like ribbons in the wind. The tether to the submarine stretches taut, leaves him hanging as all around the chunks of coal he took with him sink, sink, gradually making their way down to where the twisting unknown lay watching. Around him, shimmering air bubbles float, wavering to the surface from the airline he'd cut away from the suit. His breath fogs the suit's window as he whispers faintly, An offering. He grips the tether, that last connection to the submarine, to the air, to the crew, and begins to slice through the thick cord with a stolen knife, leaving only the frayed and drifting ends of the tether behind as he sinks into the grey abyss. William Audley leans back in the creaking wooden chair in the captain's office, laughing. (laughs) His words are slurred, uh, drunken. A solution. All of us, every man on this blasted vessel will be dead in a matter of hours. And you call me here about a solution to that? All due respect, all due respect, Captain, but I'm an engineer, not a miracle worker. Then there's nothing to be done. Of course there's nothing to be done, sir. What did you expect me to tell you? I'd magically thought of some incredible last-minute plan that had somehow saved you, myself, and all the rest of the crew in a few short hours. The chair rocks backwards, (laughs) nearly tipping him over as he laughs again, half-hearted and delirious. You find this funny, Audley? Audley snorts. No, sir. Around them, the metal of the vessel creaks near melodically. After a moment, the captain speaks, his tone no longer sharp and biting, but quieter, pensive. Tell me, how much do you believe the rumors the crew's been speaking of? About the thing down below. 
about the thing down below. The engineer shrugs. Don't know. As much as I believe anything like that, I suppose. Who knows? Maybe there is something. Maybe it's what got the drill. Doesn't much matter if we're dying anyway, does it? I'm sure we'll make a grand meal. Or at least give it indigestion. Audley's oxygen-deprived chuckle sounds flat. Captain Allard regards him in silence for a moment. Beneath the sound of their voices, below the rhythmic thrum and chuff of the engines, the captain can hear, can sense, outside the vessel, the shiftings and turnings of something much greater. It is something vast and infinite, and its mercurial and protean agitation scratch and claw at the senses, as though avid pursuit is being stalked by something just beyond the limits of direct perception. Can oddly not hear it. It is waiting, it is watching, it is biding its time. His shortness of breath is worsening by the minute. Perhaps the navigator will find some place for us to break through. He is acutely aware of the hollowness behind his words. The captain stands in the narrow chamber between the submarine's interior and the water outside, one hand holding the main pressure valve in a white-knuckled grip. He takes a breath in, a breath out. Neither feels like enough air. Beyond the walls of avid pursuit, he can hear the thing twirling itself into infinite knots as it awaits the arrival of the vessel. The time when inevitably it all would sink, would come to its rest on the seafloor. Oh, the seafloor, what was lurking there? As every failed expedition has and will. Not just waiting for the vessel, waiting for him, he realizes, for the one who brought them here, the one who put everything into motion. The creaking of the ice above sounds hollow and distant in comparison to what waits below. It is waiting, and he must go. He yanks the valve to one side, letting the rush of seawater cascade into the chamber as he shuts his eyes to listen. The stinging taste of ice and salt fills his mouth and lungs as he drifts out and away, limbs already turning numb and blue from the cold. His body sinks like a stone. Around him he can not only hear but feel the shift in the water as the thing at the seafloor moves, beckoning. The last few silvery bubbles escape his lungs, drifting upwards towards the ice as he moves ever closer to the waiting depths, to that twisting, turning resonance that echoes through his ears. It waits, has always waited, shifting, turning, watching.
As the fires wane and embers glow, our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us. Embrace no sleep. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mikulski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.